I'd like to encourage you to open up your Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. This is the passage that marks the end of Act 1 of the Gospel of Mark and transitions us to the beginning of Act 2. And this is the passage that we will leave off our series at for the moment as we begin Advent next week. And the passage raises the central question for us again of understanding, or really a lack of understanding, and of trust, of faith. That's what we want to wrestle with this morning. A fitting place to end the opening act, fast-paced act of Mark's gospel. We get to see how little both Jesus' enemies and his followers really understand him. And this prepares us for Act 2, which is the rest of chapter 8, chapters 9, and chapter 10, where Jesus will enter into a master class with his disciples, teaching them more and more about the cross-shaped nature of his vocation as Messiah and of his kingdom. But here at the end of Act 1, we're invited first to consider our level of understanding of Jesus. The question, if, you, if you'll see it in, in Mark 8, 21, with which Jesus ends. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? That's our question today. Do we understand this king and his kingdom? Do we trust him? Now this little section begins with what we might expect. It's the Pharisees and Jesus interacting once again. And this is the kind of climax of their conflict. They've gathered and asked him for a sign, which isn't altogether a a terrible thing to ask for. But why did they ask him for a sign, verse 11? They said this, they asked a sign for him from heaven to what? To test him. Showing that this is not an authentic request open to becoming followers of Jesus. Rather, it is disingenuous. They want one more reason to reject him. And so he sighs deeply in his spirit and he refuses to give them a sign. With the words, truly I say to you, these are serious words. The last time we heard them was at the end of chapter 3 in the conflict there with those leaders from Jerusalem about them saying that his authority came from Satan. So this is a time of of judgment for him. And his use of this generation harkens back to the this generation of Psalm 95 that we read earlier. The wilderness generation who, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, had seen God's great works, parting the sea, feeding his people from heavenly bread. So also Jesus had done miracles on the sea and had fed miraculously twice now two crowds in the wilderness. And yet, having seen God's work, they still put him to the test or put him to the truth, put to the proof. God says, though they had seen my ways, or, or though they had seen my works, they did not know my ways. And so they tested me. And Jesus is alluding to that here in this clash with the Pharisees. They want him to jump through one of their hoops again. And Jesus says, no. This isn't the way Israel's God works. We don't, I, God doesn't bow to your terms. And so verse 13, it says, and he left them. And that comment has a decisive ring to it. Jesus is done with the leaders of the day. And they more or less, from this point in the gospel, fade from view. Where Jesus' focus now begins to be on those disciples that are committed to him. Of course, they remain there. There's a few interactions in the, in the upcoming chapters, but now more, more and more, they're just there as the, the, the opposition. He left them as a kind of decisive turning point that Jesus was done 
with the Pharisees and the leaders of the day. They don't really understand. And that may be expected for us, but when we turn to verses 14 through 21, which is where we want to spend most of our time together, we see that there's a surprising element here that reveals just how much the disciples still lack trust and understanding. They get into a boat in verse 13 to go to the other side of the sea. And in verse 14, we're told that they had forgotten to bring bread and only had one loaf with them. There are two issues going on here. One is that the disciples are concerned about bread and Jesus is telling them they don't need to be. The other is Jesus' warning to them in verse 15. Watch out, he says. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is understood as some kind of evil or corruption. Philo, the great Jewish philosopher in the first century, sees leaven or yeast as a symbol of pride and a love of pleasure. That view of leaven would fit Herod well, as we have seen in the view, in the glimpse we get in chapter 6 of his debauched party with all the important people around him and the dancing that was going on when John the Baptist loses his life. The love of the Pharisees is a love of declaring who's in and who's out, of elevating themselves above the outsider as determined by their standard of purity. And they've distorted holiness to scrupulous law observance while being indifferent to the weightier matter of human need. That was the conflict at the beginning of chapter 3. So we expect what's going on in verses 11 through 13, this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, but we are maybe taken more by surprise with this kind of warning that Jesus gives and then what follows that warning, which we'll look at here in a moment, with his disciples. Why would Jesus warn his disciples unless they too were at risk from that leaven? Unless they too had the seeds within them for thinking in precisely the same way as the Pharisees or Herod. Love of status. Love of power. Love of pleasure. Wanting to be the one who decides who's in and who's out. Jesus says, when you're engaged in that kind of thinking, there's no room in your world for a crucified Messiah. You're not on the side of the kingdom, but rather you're on the side of Satan. Now, it, it gets a little interesting. It says in verse 16, and they began discussing, and it's really they, they were discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They, they actually don't get the warning in verse 15, either because they heard it and they're like, okay, now we need to get back to what we really need to worry about, which is the fact that we don't have enough bread, or because they heard Jesus' warning and they interpreted it as being about the fact that they had no bread. The, the underlying text here is inconclusive. But in either case, they miss the warning. And they start continuing to talk about their lack of bread. So then we get these incredibly strong words in verses 17 and 18, where Jesus says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, it's important to understand what's going on here, to hear the resonance and the allusion to several key Old Testament texts in this short list of questions. Isaiah 6, 10 through 12, which Jesus has already quoted from in the parables chapter in Mark 4, 
to talk about outsiders. They have eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. Jeremiah 5, 21, which we read earlier, which also alludes to Ezekiel 12, 2, which are both passages about rebukes and judgment against the people of God for remaining blind, even though they had seen the power of God and his works in their midst. They had seen his mighty deeds. Is it possible then that the disciples who in chapter 4, when there's an insider-outsider distinction, are said to be given the secrets of the kingdom, are now in the position of the outsiders themselves? It seems that that's what Jesus and Mark, through Jesus, is opening up to us. This possibility that that is exactly where the disciples are. It is not only the leaven of the Pharisees, these outright opponents to Jesus, or the leaven of Herod, an opponent to John the Baptist, both groups who are allied at the end of chapter, in, in chapter 3 to destroy him, these, these obvious opponents whose way of life, whose vision for Israel is far different and contrasting to Jesus' way and his kingdom. It's not only the opposition from them, But Mark is opening up the more subtle and nuanced reality that that very opposition that is seeking to kill Jesus creeps into and resides within the hearts of his own disciples. And we might add into our hearts as well. We don't need to wonder if this is the case. If you continue on into into Act 2, which I'll do just briefly for a moment, the disciples definitely experience the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod in their own lives. In chapter 9, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. Love of status. Love of power. James and John, in chapter 10, ask Jesus to have the best seats at his right and his left in his future kingdom. Glory. The disciples in in chapter 9, try to say who's in and who's out when they find somebody who's casting demons out in Jesus' name, but not following them, and they say, Jesus, we told him to stop, at which they get Jesus' firm rebuke. This all comes to a head right right away in Act 2 when Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that his messianic vocation includes suffering. That doesn't fit with Peter's vision of power and glory. So Jesus rebukes Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You're not on my side, the side of of Jesus in his kingdom, but you're on the side of the enemy who's trying to destroy me. The love of status, love of power, love of deciding who's in and who's out, based on our standards, this is utterly unacceptable to God. No place for it in his kingdom. Do you not yet understand? And this is sobering, because many of us build our lives around these very things. Trying to climb the ladder. Trying to become somebody. Being so self-consumed with our love of pleasure or security or whatever it might be, that we become blind to the needs of others around us and impervious to calls to justice and mercy easily neglecting our neighbor's needs. Think with me for a moment about the church of today. We can see some of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. There are churches today that are scrupulous about fine points of theology, 
who keep people on the outside unless they agree with every jot and tittle of their doctrine, and who in the midst of that concern have grown blind to the obvious human need around them, the chosen ones. We are not rid of the leaven of Herod either. In the church today, there's a love of status, a love of power. We have Christian celebrities that we crown with these great trophies who take all the important seats at the conferences at which they speak and enjoy that kind of position that we often give to them. Now, there are, of course, wonderful exceptions to this. But the church is quick to dole out status, being over-impressed by wealth, by intelligence, by certain kinds of gifts, often speaking gifts. We're also not immune to the love of pleasure that defined Herod's mock kingdom. We far too easily mirror the materialistic culture around us, enjoy fine foods and fine things, while routinely neglecting the way of justice and mercy and generosity. There are many wonderful counterexamples to those realities, but it's important to be honest about how much this leaven still infects us today. And the church today, and all of us today, need Jesus' warning and question, do you not yet understand? So how do we overcome these things, this leaven? In many ways, Jesus has left us in the same place when he's pushing on his disciples here that he did in chapter 7 when he talked about the things of the heart make one impure. And we're all sort of confronted under the reality of our own hearts. How do we, how do we move from these problematic ways of life to the true vision of the king? There's a key in this text to which it points us. Jesus is provoked by their ongoing spiritual blindness, their failure to trust him, with their needs in every moment. In the boat with only one loaf, they were worried and concerned about bread, about their own needs, about not having enough. But Jesus' questions point to himself and to his power to provide. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear? Do you not remember? You've been with me the whole time in Act 1. You've seen the works that I have done. You've seen me heal the sick, cast out demons, cleanse the lepers, and enable the paralytic to stand up and walk. You've seen me calm the storm with a word. You saw me raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. You've seen me walk on water, and, and you've seen me provide abundantly in the wilderness again and again. And to sharpen his point, he specifically mentions in verses 18 and 19 and 20, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Remember that? I have power and authority. I have no lack of resources. I can and will provide for all those who are in the boat with me, who are, un who are united with me. Do you not yet understand? The way of faith 
is understanding the identity and intentions of Jesus, the true king. He is the good shepherd who provides for his people. That's the core insight that God gave to Abraham long ago on Mount Moriah. The Lord will provide. Remember when he was to sacrifice his son Isaac, and there was a ram caught in the bushes. All the mighty deeds, all the exorcisms, all the healings and the feedings, all of this points in that one direction. This is for you. I am for you. Why are you worried that you don't have enough bread? Don't you get it? Faith grasps this reality, rests in this reality, banks on this reality in any and every circumstance that we encounter, however desperate or dire. And that kind of faith then produces a genuine peace within the soul, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll escape hardship. Remember John the Baptist, beheaded in a prison cell because of a party favor. And the disciples didn't escape hardship either, and neither did the Apostle Paul, and of course, neither did Jesus himself. But there is a confidence in faith that in the midst of any circumstance, even scarcity, God's provision will be enough. And that confidence, that genuine faith, frees us from the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Because Jesus is in my life, because Jesus has power and authority, I no longer, because Jesus receives the people that I would say are beyond his ability to have mercy. Because Jesus is like this, I no longer need to be in control. I no longer need to determine who's in or who's out. I no longer set the standards. That's in Jesus' hands. I no longer need status or power. I just need Jesus. And so we are freed to follow on his way. The liberation from the leaven of the Pharisees, the liberation from the leaven of Herod, the liberation from any other view of life and human flourishing that promises abundance but is contrary to the kingdom of God is found in knowing and trusting and believing that the God of heaven and earth cares for you, knows you, loves you, and will provide for you. As Jesus gives that warning, he's saying if we listen with ears to hear, with exasperation at his disciples who have been with him all along, do you not yet understand? Are you still worried for your own needs? Haven't you seen all that I've been doing? Why then does he drive this point home here as we shift into Act 2? Why is he pushing so hard on his disciples in this moment to have faith in his miraculous ability to provide? It's no surprise when we begin to turn the page in the gospel because of what he's about to reveal to them about his kingdom and his vocation. It's like he's saying, come on, guys, come here. Let's talk about this for a moment. You really need to know this. Really. Because you don't know what's coming. But I'm about to reveal it to you. 
You don't know that I'm now going to take this unprecedented, unexpected, surprising path to the cross and to call you to the same. My kingdom and true life and true holiness is about service. It's about self-sacrificial love. It's about pouring one's life out for others. And as I lead you on that path, you need to remember that all the power in the world is in my hands. You need to remember all that you've seen in me up to this point in the story. You need to know that I can and I will provide for you, come what may, and that any moment in your journey, I am there with you, and I love you, and I will walk with you through whatever it is that you encounter. And that at any moment you know I have the power to change your circumstances from those of apparent defeat to radiant victory. Though that's not always the way or even predominantly the way that I will operate. I go to the cross, the place of service, and I call you to go to the cross with me. And that is not always a comfortable place to be. Actually, quite to the contrary to our flesh and our propensity towards self-preservation, the cross is deeply uncomfortable. But I'm going there, this place of love, and I'm calling you there, too. Because this is the way of my kingdom. This is the way of true life. And whoever wants to save his life, according to the leaven of the Pharisees, or the leaven of Herod, they're going to lose their life. Whatever loses their life for me, and for the gospel, will save it. They needed to know this as Jesus Jesus begins to call them down the way of the cross, the absolute opposite of the way of the Pharisees, the opposite of the way of Herod, but the way of the God who made heaven and earth. This way of deep love and pouring one's life out. Don't be afraid. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't not perceive Don't fail to understand as we go on this way together. He holds you. The one who fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. He holds you. So we can be free to put our worrying and obsessing and anxious hearts and stewing behind us. And follow him, the crucified king, on the path of true life the path of love. This is the heart of the gospel. Freedom from fear, freedom from self-centeredness, liberation from sin, from the leaven of all kinds that is so easily infecting our hearts. And the full embrace of love. Do you know that love? That that power that we've watched for eight chapters is for you. Do you not yet understand? Jesus longs for us to understand. To know, to rest in, and to be empowered by that love. That we can follow him. It's where the next section goes. Down the paradoxical path of life, which is marked by the cross. If we don't know we're loved, if we don't yet understand, we will constantly default to the ways of the Pharisees and Herod and Wall Street and academia, etc. But when we know that we're loved, and this is why Jesus is harping on this right here at the transition, when we understand, 
we truly will be liberated to walk with him to the cross and into fuller and deeper life. That's his offer to all of us.